You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. And welcome to Spookulative Evolution. Hello, David. <sighs> and hello, listeners. And welcome to this month's final installation of Spookulative Evolution. Last one. Yeah, and as you may have realized, it is about zombies. Zombies! Zombies, and we will be discussing, as is tradition, as speculative evolution goes, how these creatures, and these are a weird one because they're actually not creatures themselves, but the afflicted, which we'll talk about, how they could have actually evolved through scientific evolution and how we could answer them through already existing biological features through known paths of evolution and what could be some alternative options to get a zombie-like creature looking at it from a scientist's point of view. Indeed, indeed. And that's where we're going to start. Now, zombies are a little bit different than what we've looked at so far. They're, they're kind of closer to the vampires in that typically vampires are uh, people who have been cursed or raised or somehow affected by an undeath-like state. Zombies are, by definition, the resurrected dead. Yeah, they're corpses. Animated corpses. And they always have been. There's always been an element with zombies that they were reanimated dead. But it's been very different reasons why they were reanimated throughout their history. So zombies are a bit weird because they don't have one single storyline. I mean, none of the monsters we talked about always had one thread. But zombies started in a completely different realm and idea compared to what we think of today you know right today we think of those shambling flesh-eating you know rotting corpses yes that's not how they started do go on so in haitian cultures from haiti there is the religion of voodoo and Mm -hmm. voodoo has lots of connotations around it but it is a legitimate religion among many people who live in that area and who have traveled from that area. There's a strong vein of it in the New Orleans and Louisiana region. So this culture believes in its own spirits and its own gods and its own um, myths and monsters. And one of them is the zombie. There's been cases of reanimated dead in other cultures, like Frankenstein is a zombie-esque creature. Right, right. And there's ghosts and things yeah. are pretty common. And, and so, and and skeletons and stuff has been, you know, Jason and the Argonauts had yep. that. So, I mean, like, reanimated dead is a, a thing that has existed, but this is where the term zombie came from. And oh, fun. where the the first veins of it, and where still some of it, the connection to it in a lot of fantasy settings comes from. So, the idea of zombies really sprung up, uh, at least as far as the history shows, in the 17 to 1800s in French-controlled Haiti. Uh, so during this time, Haiti was controlled by and occupied by French forces, and many of the people there and uh, brought over from Africa were slaves. Mm-hmm. And so this was a very slave-heavy culture at this time, and it is thought that the Myth of the zombie gained much of its strength during this time and among the slaves themselves and those 
controlling the slaves and that zombieism was actually used as a way to, through fear, to keep them behaving. And you have to understand their mentality a little bit to understand why this was something that could be used. To the slaves, death was the only escape from slavery. Ah. You, you were a slave for life, and then when you died, you were free, and you would actually, re- they thought, uh, would return to the homeland, uh, very often return to Africa. Oh, interesting. So the idea of a zombie was the worst possible outcome. You were now resurrected and were a slave even into death. That idea is more terrible than anything we will come up with for the rest of oh, yeah. this episode. That's a bit of a disclaimer for <laughs> This episode's by far most disturbing because the history <laughs> behind zombieism is ah. a dark one. And then the solutions that we're going to potentially cover are creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but the idea behind the zombie was that the in the voodoo religion, the god of kind of the god of death, but the, the lord of the cemetery, as he was known, was uh, Baron Samedi. Oh, Baron Samedi. Baron Samedi. He showed up in uh, James Bond. I think he was in Live and Let Die. Yeah, and he is a very well-known uh, character because you've probably seen people dressed like him before. He's typically he's typically portrayed in a business jacket and dark top hat and dark glasses. It's what Dr. Facilier was based off of. Yep, yep, in The Princess and the Frog. Yep, and so this... God's job was to dig a person's grave and usher them to the other side. But if you offended this God or crossed them, mm-hmm. he would not allow your soul to cross over. And this is uh, when okay. you could become as your soul is now vulnerable still in your body to be resurrected as a zombie. Right. So where the zombie came in for the slaves was that for many slaves, suicide was a way to escape slavery because right. death was a route to freedom. The slave drivers would use the fear that suicide would offend Baron Samdi, and then they could become zombies. And this would hopefully keep them from doing that. And wow. they wouldn't... Yeah, it gets real dark. Like, yeah. And the, it goes deeper and deeper. There was a person who... A dictator who controlled Haiti for a while, who dressed as Baron Samdi, and had his, his uh, elite police behave very similar as uh, zombies were expected to to mimic this so like it had strong strong roots in this culture wow humans the real monsters yep which is kind of what kind of what the stories of zombies gets into wow now interesting things for this zombie very different to what we expect from zombies today is uh there was a cure if you fed the zombie salt oh it would reverse it oh interesting so those who kept zombies kept their the food for the zombies um unflavored and uh, bland. Interesting. So yeah, it's very different zombie. There was no flesh eating. They were just now alive without a will of their own. Right, just a, an automaton. Just an a, automaton. You are controlled. Were... You're a puppet. Yes, and in the past, it got connected to this, but more so since then and uh, into today with uh, bokars or the voodoo sorcerers or witches. It was thought that some of them could curse a person before death or upon death to then raise them as zombies as their own servants. Uh, and this was a threat used by many of these dark voodoo users in communities. I mean, that's like there's cases of people, you know, having been threatened and fearing people in 
you know, not too distant past that believed if they offended this person, they might be raised as a zombie. And there are even historical cases of people claiming to have been under effects or having seen people to have been under the effects. Not a lot of it's been confirmed. There's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of uh, hearsay and mysticism around this. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it, there's a lot of murkiness to the exact details of where all of these stories come from and what the sources are. But there's one very interesting one that you will definitely hear pop up if you look up Haitian zombies. Mm. And it is that there was a, a very scientific solution given for how a voodoo you know, sorcerer or witch could turn a person into a zombie using toxins. Is this the tree thing? The special uh, plant? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And uh, pufferfish venom was a big part of it as well. Oh, interesting. So uh, Wade Davis, a Harvard University ethnobotanist, studied the Haitian culture and the concept of zombieism, and through his findings, suggested a pharmacological solution in 1938 to zombies, at least this variety. And he gave a very detailed explanation. And I've heard it mentioned multiple times since then. Now, it's been questioned since it was published. So it's probably not 100% hit the mark, but this is what you will often hear. And it's a very interesting one. And there's probably some truth to many of these things. So he claimed that a death-like and uh, zombified state could be achieved. Not true death, not true resurrection, but symptoms through the use of natural toxins. And the main ones was tetrodotoxin, which is the pufferfish toxin. This is why you can't eat a pufferfish unless it's prepared in the crazy, crazy ways that certain chefs in Japan and other places have learned how to do it. And this is a paralysis. This is a neurotoxin. It will paralyze you, stop your heart, you'll die. But if the toxin is dried out, it can be powderized and it can be diluted so that's not deadly. And this powder can be puffed into your face. And if you inhale it, it will get through your skin and through your membranes and your nasal system. That's why you know snorting things works it will get into your bloodstream and have an effect on you. This was believed to paralyze you enough to slow your heart that you could be determined dead by non-medical professionals. Interesting. So this would kill you, and then the other drug that would be implemented either in the same puff, he claimed, or I've heard people who say it was soon after the fact, is hallucinogenic drugs. So the person, quote-unquote, dies. Mm -hmm. The village holds a funeral and buries them. And then the Bokar, the uh, sorcerer, digs up the body and feeds them or induces these hallucinogens into them. Or it happens in the same puff, whichever way it actually was supposed to be done. And through the paralysis, potentially the fact of being buried and any oxygen deprivation, but the hallucinogens would keep them in a suggestive state to where they were never completely lucid and they were more prone to suggestion. And because he claimed the belief in zombieism was so strong in this culture, the person would believe themselves to be a zombie. Right, right, right. They said, well, I've died. I obviously was dead. I've just sat up in my grave. Yeah. And now I am being told I am a zombie by a Bokar. So I I'm, I'm, must be a zombie. And their brain would trick them into playing the part. It's like 
convincing it's like a phantom limb syndrome where you, your yeah, brain convinces yeah. yourself something because it believes it so strongly wow i've heard a similar thing and i don't remember what the details were but there's apparently some plant mm-hmm. in i think south america that can induce a similar thing yeah right? sort of partial paralysis and or and or a very suggestive state of mind and so this this has been the scientific solution to the the voodoo zombie the haitian zombie once again, it's been criticized to an extent. Uh, many people have said that the tetrodotoxin doesn't actually have the effects that he was claiming or their effects might not yield the results he was saying they would. Hmm. And that they doubt someone could be because it's been claimed that they could keep a zombie for years by continuously feeding them the hallucinogens and keeping them basically hypnotized. Yeah. And they have said they're not sure that that makes sense. So. This may have veins in truth. It may not. But this is the ideas. And there's been movies who use this. Yes. This whole process of the powders and the poisons and the the mind-controlled zombies. So it's made its way into the culture. Uh, and it's – I can't count how many people I've heard mention this before. So it's it's a very common zombie factoid that you will hear come up. Then – we get into modern zombies and things take a complete left turn with George <laughs> A. Romero. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one that made what we know as zombies. Yeah. And the fun fact is he didn't even intend them as zombies when he made them. Oh. Yeah. He called them ghouls in the movie. Oh, interesting. Other people started calling him zombies and he was like, that's not what they were really supposed to be, but I can see where you're coming from. And then it's stuck and they were zombies. And now they are the classic modern mm-hmm. zombies. And this is shambling, yeah, looking for brains, bloodied and torn up corpses. There was a, a reviewer that said that he combined the idea of zombies and vampires to make them a spreadable, you know, contagion, and they fed on the living instead of served the living. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, now they're a plague instead of slaves. Yes. They're still mindless. They're still reanimated dead but now they are out of control and out for brains blood flesh what have you i remember i had a a literature teacher in college who studied sort of occult literature and and horror media and i never followed up on him but he was doing a study where he was relating the rise of things like zombies as horror movie creatures Mm -hmm. with things like the red scare Absolutely. And that's something that has been connected many times and was definitely being used in the original Night of the Living Dead was the the first zombie movie in 1968. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely making commentary on social ills and things going on in society at the time. The Red Scare has been referenced with this encroaching threat that is converting and contaminating society and slowly tearing apart the world you know right. one and person a at a time mass of people it's it's they are their numbers are only growing yes you know, a unified of mass of people in day of the dead it takes place in a mall and is absolutely a commentary on mindless consumerism mm-hmm. and out of control capitalism and how we can be controlled by the places like malls that serve us all the goods we could ever want but don't necessarily need. And there's been, it, this has been looked at with all the zombies. You know, 28 Days Later with the fast 
rage-induced, violent zombies, you know, and they were much more of that scary, uh, uh, rioting, yeah, you know, fears of of society breaking down and people going mad and violence just, you know, uncontrolled. I've seen people will even compare that one to uh, fear of terrorism and things like that, of violence, not of societal changes, but of sudden, random, uncontrolled violence. So, yeah, zombies have been a commentary on society throughout their history. They also have served oftentimes where where the zombies are basically just a disaster. Yeah. And the real story is what the people are doing. How do humans handle themselves among such a situation right in which case they very much are like a plague they're they're not a they're not the villains they are just an event that's happening yeah like no one hates the storm in day after tomorrow exactly no one curses the the characters do but no one in the audience curses the storm yeah it's not the villain yeah it's just a thing that is happening to us zombies are very much that mentality is this is just a thing that afflicts us and it once it does, there's not much to stop it except for, you know, retaliation. And one of the, the key features that started with Night of the Living Dead was you had to kill the brain to kill the zombie. That's yep. That's been a truth of zombies Headshot. almost through and through. Double know, tap. Double tap. <laughs> and these are kind of the, the shared features. They're reanimated dead. Uh, they are mindless with the modern ones, they're seeking flesh. With the old ones, it's more mind control. Mm-hmm. Uh, the newer ones introduce that contagion that they are spreading it. Uh, yes. Now, in many zombie movies and in things like The Walking Dead, it is not that the bite is contagious, but that recently dead corpses, you know, fresh corpses, are reanimated by something. Right. In The Walking Dead, it's a virus that has just permeated the environment and can only take hold once a human body is dead. So you could die of a flu and come back as a zombie. In Night of the Living Dead, they actually have a news thing where it's supposed to be a radioactive material. That makes sense. It hadn't become viral at that point. Nowadays, we think of most zombies as a viral plague. Originally, they weren't. They were something mysterious has happened, and now there are zombies. And that makes perfect sense culturally. Yes. Yes, radioactive zombies were the thing around the same chunk of the century that Godzilla and the mm-hmm. Incredible Hulk, like radiation was the go-to thing. That was now we're was in a scary. world. Yeah, now we're in a world that has experienced AIDS and mm-hmm. SARS and things like that. All right, viruses are our zombies. Yeah, it, it's, it's a constantly, that's one of the most interesting things about zombies is they have a, a long history like many of the other monsters, but they are constantly evolving in our culture. I mean, vampires are as well, but zombies are like a zombie from today versus our parent zombie zombie movies and the zombie movies before that or zombie stories before that are all vastly different. Yeah. So there's only a few uniting features. Yes. They are almost always reanimated dead, which brings us to the magical disclaimer. Hooray! Because you can't reanimate dead tissue. Right. We've never, ever, ever been able to find a way to do that. <laughs> Electricity doesn't do it. You That's called cooking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's so, great. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's, you can't, you can't reanimate corpses. So this is our supernatural aspect 
of our zombies. That's and uh, unfortunately, that's the unifying aspect of zombies. Right. I'm sure we can find some fun alternatives. Absolutely. So I'm I, I'm thinking we focus more on the mindless aspect and the hunger for flesh and the contagion aspect. Yes. The the things that if they were to happen to a person, you know, if you saw a person going, you know, shambling around, you'd say they're acting like a zombie. Those features. Yes. How could those features be inflicted on a human and why would something inflict those features for a, for a spreading mechanism? Especially that's what I always think of with zombies is, you know, there, there needs to be a reason they're biting and spreading. Right. It always baffled me that. The method for which they fed and the method for which they were spread were the same thing, because then that means I've given a lot of thought to the absurdity <laughs> of slow zombie movies. That would mean that you would eventually hit a critical mass point with zombies to where once they got to a certain numbers, they would stop multiplying because a zombie shambling around is going to bite a few people uh, and going to spread itself very effectively. You know, it's going to double or triple its numbers, you know. A few zombies are going to have that effect. Once there's 200 zombies, any person they catch is going to be devoured. Yeah. And that's no longer a new zombie. So, like, you are, you have auto-capped your population. Yeah, yeah. If you're a virus, and that's not typically what viruses do if they're working on a plague scenario. So, I've always thought that was interesting. So, I'm trying to figure out ways around that uh, is interesting to me. And I, I, I stumbled upon a weird virus that actually gives me a very fun answer oh boy so in this so in this scenario as we do our speculative evolutioning unlike the previous three episodes we're not necessarily evolving an animal species yeah not necessarily it sounds like we're going to be talking about parasites yeah we will be and that's exciting the zombie it's because a flesh-eating creature is just a carnivore like that's yes <laughs> that's actually what that word means yeah so zombies are always an infection. They're always a disease. Yes. And parasites, be they viral, bacterial, or otherwise, are a great source to look into that. Now, some of these are going to be hard for us to delve probably as deep into because viruses are not super well understood evolutionarily, period. Yeah. So there's some of these that are going to be tricky. But there are some modern-day internal critters out there that fit the bill pretty well for zombie-like potential. Yeah, so what did you find? So I found a virus that is the Baculoviridae, and this is a virus that affects uh, insects and crustaceans, so various arthropods. Once it infects the host, and this was the part where I, whenever I heard about viral zombies, I'm like, yeah, but viruses typically are, are either just making you contagious or if they're deadly, they just spread. Like, right. That's you know typically how zombies are shown isn't what I thought of viruses working. This virus makes the host eat uncontrollably to nourish the body and promote growth of the virus. Huh. And then it reaches a critical mass point within the body, sort of. It reaches a, a gestation point, I guess you could say. And when it is ready to spread... It causes the host to climb higher into its habitat. And then the vi the way viruses work, for anyone who doesn't know, is they are not like bacteria that can just grow in your body like a mold or, you know, like funguses just and bacteria can just grow inside you. Right. They're just living on you, in you. 
A virus uses your cells to make more of it. It hijacks a cell, corrupts your DNA to make it make more viruses instead of more cells mm-hmm. or more proteins or whatever it is that you would be making. And then eventually that cell pops and all the viruses that have been made inside of it are now spread further to do that to more cells. And there's lots of complex ways viruses can do this where they can sit and wait until they've spread throughout many cells and then they all burst or it can just do it one at a time. When this one is ready to do that, to burst out of those cells, tells the insect or whatever it is to climb up high in its habitat and then it's <laughs> the cells now stop making viruses and start secreting enzymes that dissolves the animal into goo. I'm quoting this from the page I read them on. <laughs> and then that goo rains down into the environment as clumpy viral material to be eaten by other animals and infect them. That's awesome. <laughs> now, we should we should take a moment and talk about one of my favorite scientific terms, host manipulation. Host manipulation is going to be a big topic for this episode. So Will just described a virus making an insect crawl somewhere. Okay, how does that happen? So host manipulation, any parasite, viral, bacterial, fungal, and I'm about to mention a fungal. Yep, uh, we have uh, all of those on the list. (laughs) I'm sure. You go right ahead. You (laughs) You go right ahead. Uh They get inside the body, and depending on where they implant themselves, I mean, so much of our behavior is chemically induced. Yeah. And if you start messing with hormones, and you start messing with immune responses, and you start messing with gene expression, there are fungi that spread in water. Mm -hmm. So they'll infect an insect, and then cause it, by messing with its internal physiology, cause it to overheat. Mm -hmm. So it jumps into the water. Yep. And then the fungus can spread. You can it 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 is surprising how much you can hijack in the body. If you have a natural tendency to climb somewhere, that can be hijacked. There are parasites that will that that usually uh, uh animal parasites, I believe. Yes. That will lay their eggs and then force the host, induce a parental instinct in the host yeah. to protect the parasite's eggs. There's there's a various, the parasitoid wasps, which came up, I believe, when we talked about vampires. Yep. Uh, those have a number of times. There's uh, two that I know of that one does it with a caterpillar, one does it with a spider, and they sting them, and they have a special, <laughs> This it gets so sci-fi so quickly yep (laughs) uh parasitoid wasps have a special virus called the poly dna virus that is only within the abdomen abdomens of female parasitoid wasps it has a symbiotic relationship with them and when it is injected into a host it manipulates their anatomy and genes to make it more ideal and less hostile to the larvae that are about to be implanted inside their body yep but it also can do mind control stuff, and there's one that does it with a caterpillar and a spider to where after they've been stung and after the larval, larva uh, come out hatch from the body and are ready to pupate, they use their thread, their silk, to form part of the cocoon for the Jeez. larva. <laughs> That's awesome and terrifying. So the caterpillar can no longer make its own cocoon. It would have died anyway, but it uses its stored up silk 
for its cocoon and gives it to the wasp larva. And then it actually sits there and protects them. It wops, it wops away other parasitoid wasps. Yeah. As they would come. So, yeah, you can get real crazy real fast. And to go back to what you were saying about the virus raining down, it reminds me of right? if you're at all familiar with host manipulation, you've heard of cordyceps, mm-hmm, the fungus mm-hmm. uh, and the famous scene that was in. I think this was planet Earth. Yeah. Planet Earth uh, uh, narrated by Sigourney Weaver. Yep. For the reference to alien. Yep. It was done on purpose uh, where they have an ant crawls up to the top of a high place and then the stalk of the fungus grows out of its head and rain spores down over the Mm -hmm. colony i like your version because it involves the flesh eating yeah and that's exactly that's why i was reading it i was like oh wow that's that's a zombie bug yeah it's what if it was a virus that affected people that way and it needed we need protein to make more person you need more person so (laughs) you start it makes you just hungry for flesh and if a person's around, that you're indiscriminate on the flesh. And there's zombies that are like that. Some zombies ignore all animals but people, but there's plenty of zombies where it's like, if it's meat, I'm going to eat it. And right, you just right. are walking meat. You know, I've I've exhausted all the meat in this meat locker. Now we're moving toward the hospital. <laughs> you could also imagine a scenario where you have an infection that is so specific to humans that the product it needs more of is very specific. Like you need more yes. human myoglobin or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, exactly. it is. Like you specifically the the flesh that is going to best serve our purposes is human flesh. And then with this, if this were the goo virus that had jumped species to us, let's say, then you get a really awesome version of spread because you could have it bite. Like you could still have the bite be infectious if you wanted to that'd be pretty easy for the virus just to be present in the saliva mm-hmm. you know it's just your your saliva becomes more slimy and now it's more like a, a stingray sting where the the slime's just on your teeth and if you break someone's skin it gets in there yeah but then this also means that you could get a zombie that has reached its point its maturity it's a mature zombie and now it's seeking out people because once it gets near a crowd it pops yes and just showers them in goo and all of them are now potentially infected. And you you got you got good. It's just it's it'd be like a a burster from uh, what is it? A Left for Dead where it's the big fat yep. zombies yep. that pop on you. And now in case any of our listeners are saying, "Hang on. You you took a big old jump from dissolving into goo to exploding. There are bugs that explode." And it's very easy to build up gases and pop as well. Like oh, yeah. The human body pops all the time when it rots. There's a species of ants that mm-hmm. have a... I don't remember how this works. I don't remember what the, the reaction is, well, I, but they blow themselves up, basically. They have uh, two lines of chemical down their body, and their defense for the nest is when they get threatened, they go toward the enemy, and then they, in a really horrifying way, contort their body... Until they basically break their little ant backs and connect those two liquids, which pop and form into a goo, a glue that cements the intruder where they are. So they're they're kamikaze ants just exploding with slime and muck. Now, another way you could do it, and this is where I thought it was going when you were describing it, is because you have had this creature gorge itself. Mm-hmm. If we don't want exploding people, you could have them crawl up to a high place and then vomit. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they're specialized for being in, like, cities. Yeah. <laughs> where there's crowds below. 
Or even if they just vomited on an individual. Like that's what uh twenty eight days later did. Yeah, yeah. Is it was it was a bloody vomit that they transmitted the virus with, not biting. Yeah, and that's you know, carrying so could, the the mm-hmm. infection. You just have a projectile goo that you're able to vomit up. Now it's it's assumed that this would quicker and quicker deteriorate you because it's having to use your cells dissolving to create that goo. Mm-hmm. So these zombies would have a shelf life. You know, zombies would not be able to wander for decades, you know, just continually shambling. Right. Eventually the body would die and the virus in that body would pass on and hopefully have spread to others. But you you would it's this would be a ravage on the body. You would not live very long with this affecting you. And I like that idea because that can also get you a person who is falling apart mm-hmm. as they're infected by this. Yeah, because of the virus eating at them. Yeah, because it's repurposing functions in the body. And so you maybe you're not healing properly. Yeah. That you've got these open wounds and well, listen, we're using all of our resources. Yeah. If it's hijacked your biochemistry in that way, if it's hijacked your cells, then yeah, you're not making white blood cells. What are you talking about? Yeah. You're not making new tissue. You're making new goo. So you could get these zombies. Not, they're not dead, but they're mindless and their mm-hmm. bodies are falling apart. Yeah. Starting with the skin, probably. And working yeah. its way inward because you need that heart and those lungs and that brain. And if you're making it gorge to make more virus, you're going to need the digestive system functioning as well. So yep. most organs are going to have to be left alone by the virus. It's But the skin and limbs and many of the muscles aren't necessary for survival. And if you're bleeding all over the place, that means while you're running around chasing after people, you're going to be spreading the virus. Yeah. And now now you have your even if your person gets away, you got scratched or you got bit mm-hmm. and they're bleed. This is a gross episode, everybody. Oh, yeah. Like I said, this is going to be our most disturbing one by far because <laughs> zombies are, are gross. Their history is is depressingly upsetting. And yeah. then the creatures we're talking about are real world horrors. They're they're nightmarish. Now, this one, this episode is also going to be a little interesting because. We're probably going to be able to come up with a couple of very interesting zombies here because there's a lot of yes. different ways you can make zombies. Uh, I wanted to talk about this just for this is my favorite host manipulation. Mm-hmm. This is by far the most interesting one to me. Uh, liver flukes. Oh, my goodness. I Man, I'm glad we're friends. Right? Liver flukes are a flatworm that live with it, typically mammals. Uh, but at least warm-blooded animals, typically, because there are liver flukes in birds. Right. But they live in the liver. They live in the liver, and they feed off of blood, and they feed off of, you know, the stuff in there. They're typically not deadly, but they, it's kind of like having a tapeworm. It's eating part of your nutrients, so usually the animal is weakened yeah. and more prone to illness. It's in your gut eating your food. Yeah. So it's not going to you anymore. It's going to this other animal. Well, while it's living in, this one lives mostly in grazers. This is the um, Dicrocolium, and it mainly is in grazing animals, and its life cycle is ridiculous. Yep. So when the fluke is ready to reproduce, it lays eggs that it allows to be released in the feces of the animal. Yeah, they poop them out. And the grazing animals, for many of them, their poop is full of vegetation still. 
Oh, yeah. Cows, oh. sheep, goats, yeah. things like this. So th- there are plenty of animals that feed off of these cow patties. Uh, one of the big ones is, is snails. Mm-hmm. Snails will come over the poop, start eating it, ingest the eggs, at which point the larval enters its next stage of life where it hatches, and this new juvenile stage drills through the wall of the gut to settle in the snail's digestive tract. Mm-hmm. Already horrifying. Yeah. To defend itself, the snail forms a cyst around the parasite, and uh, the parasite also is very irritating to the snail to make it form that cyst. And they use slime as the protector a lot of the times. Yes. For many of the snails, they form a slime ball cyst around this parasite and slowly pass it often out of and off of the body and leave yes. it in their slime trail that they leave behind. And then the snail's part of the job is done. Yep. Enter intermediate host number two. So the snail was the first intermediate host. Yeah. So it lives in the liver, lays eggs that come out in the poop, eggs hatch in the snail, bother the snail until it spits it out. Mm-hmm. Now we have a little slime-covered larva. And slime is extremely moisture-rich. So ants tend to follow snail slime trails to get moisture. Yep. And will end up digesting or ingesting this cyst. Yep. And the parasite now enters its next stage of life, where from the gut of the ant, it multiplies. And most of it stays within the ant's body, just in the main gut. At least one of them moves to the subesophageal gland, which is a nerve ganglion. Now, for all of you to know, in insects, they don't have true brains. Like, they don't have a central brain node like we do. They have nerve clusters right? that are just bundles of nerve that act as thinking centers. But this is why a cockroach can survive without its head because most of its brain is in the rest of its body. Yeah, they're spread out. So they don't have a single brain, but they do have concentrated areas. There is one under the throat of an ant, and that's where the parasite goes to and takes control of many of the ant's actions, Mm -hmm. but in a really interesting way. So... After all this has happened, the ant acts normally most of the day. Right. Until evening approaches. When things start to get darker and the air cools, the infected ant is then told by the parasite to climb upward. Yes. To climb up stems of grass, up toward the top of the the fields that they may be hiding in, and then clamp its jaws to the tip of a grass or flower or whatever may be up up there. And it stays that way until dawn. Mm Mm-hmm. If, and if you watch videos of it, it's very disturbing because the ant holds on and then its little feet just start constantly twitching. Like, it looks like a mind-controlled, <laughs> it it fits the bill. Zombie ant. Now, the interesting part comes in, if nothing happens to the ant when day starts to come back, the ant is released from the mind control and allowed to go back its to its duties. Yep, just goes back, normal day. Because if the parasite-infested ant is exposed to the heat of the sun, the ant will die, and so will the parasite. Right. So the parasite doesn't allow the ant to kill itself in the sun, and it does this night after night after night after night until finally a grazing animal that's feeding in the evening comes along and eats the blade of grass with the ant on it and happens to swallow it, and then the liver fluke is back next to a new liver that it can live in. Yes. It's crazy. It's you know where I first learned about that? 
Animal where? Planet's the most extreme. Yep, I remember that. I loved the animation for that one. That was <laughs> such a perfect visualization. I like this one because I was thinking in our earlier in this conversation about if our zombie parasite might have an intermediate host. I was trying to think of that as well of what would we be the intermediate or would we be the final one? Right, right. And what animals would be involved other than us? Yes. And then also because I like the idea that it's like the the idea that it's only controlled at night. Yeah. Is kind of really cool. I don't know that that would work super well for humans because a human would have the sense of the the, the mind to be like, hey, I just spent all night doing a weird thing. Yep. Maybe something's wrong with me. And that's most of the mind controlling things typically happens with insects because they don't have a complex brain. Yeah. So you can latch onto a thing and go, well, I have all control of your limbs now. Well, that's not how a human brain works. Yeah. Like... We are, we are a bit differently. Yeah, so those kind of things would be harder with us, but you definitely could get something weird. And I, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to think about the behaviors that could be caused. You know, and if we are the intermediate one, I really wonder what we're being used to get to. I was thinking, so I, I wanted to come back to the wasps for a second. And the reason is because very early on, you'd mentioned the notion of Zombies being mind controlled, not not being, you know, the modern voracious zombies, but servants. Mm-hmm. And I was imagining a way to combine that. And I want to go to insects, specifically hymenopterans, because hymenopterans are one of the few groups of animals that has mastered eusociality. Yes. Eusociality, of course, refers to, you know, genetic caste systems, queens yes. and workers and things like that. And I like the thought of getting the best of both worlds where mm-hmm. you can have something waspy that is doing the host manipulation. Yeah. And you could feasibly, you could imagine an insect hijacking the body system to create whatever pheromones its yeah. ancestors used for the queens to control the workers. Mm-hmm. And now the human body is releasing those pheromones to the other zombies nearby. Yeah. And if yeah. those are a different manifestation of it, now those now you have one parasitized body in command of nearby parasitized bodies. Yeah, yeah. It it would be making the zombies a a hive. And if this is the larvae doing this, like it would be super cool. Because now I'm thinking like um, dragonfly or mayfly nymphs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where mayflies, you know, they're in the their nymph stage for you know it's this aquatic swimming bug for years, mm-hmm. and then one day, and they become adults, and the adults go up in a big swarm, and they mate, and then they lay eggs, and they die, and then it starts over again. That the larvae might live in the bodies of people for a while and spread their eggs or, you know, making more workers, basically. Or be be feeding off of the, the stuff it makes the zombie eat. Yep. And that you could be continuously reproducing more for the, the colony. And then every now and then you release the volant adults. Mm-hmm. And you get this swarm of the, the adult version. The mouth of flies from the mummy. Just, <gasps> they, they would have to come out of the mouth, right? I mean, I mean it, it would also make sense. 
if because <laughs> the the mind control comes from the parent stinging, you know the the larvae tip are not the ones inducing that into the the host typically. So if the mother wasp stings you, mind controls you, and then injects eggs into you, she can put the eggs wherever she wants. Why not in the stomach where all of that meat you're now going to go be eating as a zombie is going to end up, and these maggots yes. can feed off of it. And you could even have it similar to the the liver fluke where one of those larvae implants in the brain or wherever and starts Mm -hmm. manipulating hormonal stuff and the rest are in the stomach ready to be spread. Yes, that's I was thinking the same thing. When you vomit on people. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm having fun. Right. And what's super cool is now we have an evolutionary trajectory for any of these. Like those are systems already present. Mm hmm. In insects, these are systems that have already evolved in super weird parasites that are animal or... I brought it over to animals because that's what we do. Yep. But viral could do this too. And And then you you get your horde. Yes, absolutely. There's a reason for it to be a a horde that is not eating each other. Because that's always the thing that I've also questioned with zombies. Why don't they eat each other? Here you have a reason why. They recognize each other. I don't want to eat another... Uh, a host because then I'm hurting my own species, which is fantastic. I like that you brought up a fungus earlier because that classically that was always my fan theory on zombies is that it could Mm -hmm. be a fungal thing, especially because fungus can feed off of meat just like we can. Yes. There's a reason that meat rots and goes bad with fuzzy stuff growing on it from time to time because fungus can feed off that too. And we've already seen mind controlling funguses. And then I also like it because fungus mycelium, the quote unquote roots of the fungus, it's the 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 vine like vein like body of the fungus that is most of the fungus could spread throughout a human body. <gasps> oh yes, it could. And alter it that way. And and then then you could also still have that semi falling apart corpse, but it's being the important parts are maintained by the mycelium. It's hanging together by threads. Literally. Oh, it's like chicken wire holding your body together. And this was always my fan theory. And then I, I was quite happy. I never feel uh, gypped when a more a more notable thing comes up with the same idea as me. That feels more like validation for me. Because it's like, yeah, okay, someone else thought it was a good idea too. <laughs> uh, Last of Us, the video game. has fungal zombies yeah it's a fungus there yeah Mm -hmm. it does and they did what i always thought would be cool is that the nice thing with funguses just like the ant is it means that your zombie could reach a point to where it eventually just collapses and then just goes yes and shoots those spores out and just spores everywhere so like if you came across a dead zombie in a building and touched it it puffs on all of you and now you're all zombies (laughs) now what is fun is you could, as you mentioned early on, parasitoid wasps, uh, many cases have viral mm-hmm. symbionts. Yep. So we could combine both of these ideas and yep. have the body controlled in part by this fungus that the fungus has intermediate hosts. We are an intermediate host for the fungus. Yeah. Next to the wasp larvae and the, or the adult wasps. And now we have both. Yep. Cause I like the I like your spore shooting, yeah, mycelium. <laughs> now, I had I had one, this this was an idea 
that I literally thought of randomly while doing the research. This is this is coming in a little bit from less field, but I had this idea and using the things we've already learned and combining them with this thing made what is now my favorite version of my headcanon zombie. Oh boy. Have you listeners ever heard of the tongue-eating louse? Uh, man, I am so <laughs> listeners find make yourself a friend. <laughs> who brings up all your favorite weird stuff before you get the chance to do it? I was thinking about the tongue eating louse, yes. and I had I was like, ah, I'm not gonna bring that one up. But now that you have an actual idea for it, I do. I'm happy to talk about the tongue eating louse. I do because so the tongue eating louse <laughs> is a parasitic isopod, and isopods include all these sea dwelling multi section and multi legged critters, but they're also uh, wood lice, roly polies, pill bugs. Yeah. Those little curly up, they look, they're often compared and look very similar to trilobites in the fact that they have very similar section bodies, but no relation. But they are these little crawly around things on the ocean floor. Some of them get big. The giant one gets like almost a foot. Yeah. This is a very small one. And what it does is they enter a fish through the gills and then attach to the fish's tongue. Now, uh, I didn't know this until I was looking up. Females attach to the tongue. The male attaches to the gills behind the female and just wedges himself under her. Huh. So they have different spots. Then the female, once reaching the tongue, severs the blood vessels, drains the blood from them until the tongue just atrophies and falls off. Yep. It just, it just amputates it. Through, it's the same technique as putting a rubber band around the to castrate a, a goat or something like that. Mm-hmm. You're just cutting off blood supply and it just falls off. Yep. Then she attaches herself to the stub and replace it functionally replaces the fish's tongue. And what I mean by functionally is the if the fish used its tongue to move food or do anything like that, it still can do that. It's just now using this <laughs> arthropod. <laughs> it's a little prosthetic. It's a prosthetic. To it's its missing tongue. And then the parasite, uh, most of them either feed on the host's blood or mucus. And some of them feeding on food particles, but it's mostly the fluids of the fish. And it just stays there. It's the only parasite known to functionally replace a body part. Mm-hmm. And uh it it will outlive when the fish dies it'll often climb out and has been seen on the body or head of the fish and they don't know what happens to it after that but Weird. it this happens the idea i immediately had when i was reading this and doing looking up stuff for this episode is if you had something that replaced our tongue like one of these isopods that puts it in a perfect spot to feed off of what we're feeding on mhm and if you have it with a, a poly DNA virus of some sort to direct us to it, just it like the, the original virus we talked about, it just makes us insatiably hungry. We we just need to feed and protein is what it wants. I feel the need, <laughs> the need to feed. And then it's directing you to do that. And the reason I really like this is now it can make the bite infectious. Yeah, and, and and it makes the bite infectious like a xenomorph. Like a xenomorph, because now if the female <laughs> is the one in your mouth, she can produce eggs that coat your teeth and are within your saliva. And as you bite someone, it implants the eggs and larvae of this isopod into the flesh of the person you bit. 
which that. now can travel either across your skin, under the skin, or through the blood, whichever way, up to the mouth, and a a one mature female will take place there. And so you could have a similar thing with the liver flukes, where maybe there's lots in your belly, and that's why you're having to eat so much. And they these are providing some of the eggs, or eventually you do, you know, give birth to a bunch of isopods. So our the consistencies between our ideas here, uh, having things in the tummy, I think is yes. really cool. I think larvae, that... you're you're collecting the flesh that you're insatiably devouring. Oh, because and that's all. It always bugged me that an undead corpse would be feeding on people. Because well, then what are you doing with it? You know. Yeah. I've even seen version of zombie things where they canonically say, due to the inability to digest the flesh they're eating, their stomach eventually pop. Was like, all right. Well, then that doesn't make sense unless yes. it's unless there's a virus that's not supposed to be in us and it's causing some kind of madness yeah but to functionally have a reason to eat flesh and for that i think having an animal parasite is really makes, nice because they they will be active i mean tapeworms can out eat a person if you have too many yeah so that happens and now we haven't talked a lot about the evolution of these things. And I think it we don't know a ton about the evolution of these sort of mm-hmm. parasites. But the fact that they all exist, <laughs> I, you, you can really easily imagine I'm, if it works in some combination. Of, uh, obviously, I think the biggest thing is making it work in a vertebrate. And and really, the only thing we're lacking is the mind control. We already have parasites that live in our belly, eat our food, and then pass their eggs when we poop. It's a tapeworm oh, yeah. and various other worms and stuff that get inside us. So, like, a thing feeding off of your food and making you hungrier because you're not feeling full because it's taking some of it, that already exists. Now yep. we just need it to mind control you. And something, I mean, there's suspicion of things... Mm-hmm. controlling your behavior when you're infected with them. Yeah, we talked about that with the vampires again, that that uh, the cat virus. Yep, yep. So in our situation, we can imagine uh, advancing that a little bit, especially if we have multiple things working together. Yes. Like we've got our animal parasite and their symbiotic fungus or whatever it is working together. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've th- these are these are terrifying. I just like picturing a person like coming at you with their mouth open, and then you just seeing a little face inside their mouth. <laughs> just because they, when you look at the isopod and the fish, it just looks like it's peeking out. Like, oh, um, hi. Uh, oh, you you've <laughs> noticed me. Ah, someone else. <laughs> now, if we want to combine my idea with your idea, we can say that we you got the male and the female doing different things. Yeah, and one of them implants in the mouth, and the other implants elsewhere, and is doing the pheromony stuff. Yeah, because I mean, it, it would also make <laughs> sense if they did if they did some of the even if it's not on a you social network. If it's I'm gonna make you smell so that you aren't attacked by another isopod group, right? So that we this this is how we niche partition ourselves into not feeding on one another. You yes. Know. It's just by we we know to avoid. It's kind of like a predator staying out each, out of each other's territories. It's mm-hmm. not that I I a tiger can't come into you tiger's territory. It's just if we do, then we're gonna fight when one of us might die and one of us we might both get injured. And it's just I'll stay over here. You st- and so it could just be a yeah. way to avoid cannibalism. I think that makes perfect sense. 
And I would like to add one last thought, and that mm-hmm. thought is, you mentioned this way early on, of capping yes. your scenario here. If our thing we've created is particularly virulent, mm-hmm. it is quickly going to run out of resources. Yes. And I haven't had a time to put a lot. So for the listeners who haven't, I don't know if I've mentioned this, Will thinks about these episodes. I don't. <laughs> Everything for me is off the top of my head because I think it's more fun that way for me. <laughs> so I haven't taken the time to think about this in depth, but there are a lot of creatures in the real world that go dormant mm-hmm. to potentially allow for resources to rejuvenate. Viruses have yes. what is called the lysogenic cycle, where instead of getting into a cell and then immediately taking over the DNA, they go in, put their DNA into the cell's DNA, and then it sits there until the conditions are right for it to do the virus thing. It just makes you part virus. Yes. And you just replicate those cells normally. Yep. Until some trigger says, all right, start making viruses now, and it's been dormant for however long. I kind of like the thought that maybe what we we have here, and going back to this, this will tie into sort of my parasitoid wasp relation, is that what if this thing also functions like cicadas? I was going to say cicadas. Yep. And it you have an outbreak, and then once human resources start disappearing, they, whatever version is, they go dormant. Mm-hmm. And then many years or decades or whatever later, when humans have re- kind of taken over again, they can come back out. Which means two really cool things. Uh in this, in a world, in a civilized human world where this exists, you could have things like the CDC reminding everyone, "All right, cicada." Remember, isopod season is coming up. Like, yes, the the, the need, twenty-two year you need to be prepared. Parasite. We we know it's happening within the next five years. Like our research shows, it should be. Uh, <laughs> but you would have it just all of a sudden, and this this would really fit a lot of the movies because. It always used to irk me that zombie movies take place during Outbreak or after Apocalypse, but they never show the Apocalypse because it doesn't make any sense because we have guns. Uh, (laughs) Double tap. I live in the South. I've never believed that zombies would be able to take over any place (laughs) that I've ever lived. Oh, and we should mention real quick that if these parasites are implanted in the mouth or the brain, it also explains why headshots work. Yes, absolutely. If that's where absolutely. the controlling thing is is from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is that that's that's what's going to stop it completely, and it completely. Now you also should be able to kill the host, but you would definitely end it immediately. You know, right, shooting right. it in those spots. So you could have sudden outbreak, which fits with the zombie apocalypse thing of suddenly cross country, cross world potentially. You could have zombies popping up, but also. It means that it would be this, it would have this eerie moment at some point when they, all the zombies just drop dead. Yes. When the larvae are finally ready to burst and burrow back underground and yes. wait for the next. So you would just all of a sudden, it would be zombie apocalypse for who knows how long and then over, done. Yep. Silence. And fungi can go dormant too. They can form yeah. little cysts. And so, so that I, I like that we've got this symbiotic parasitism. And they have a dormancy cycle, and then they come out, and they have this complicated, rapid life cycle, mm-hmm. which is another thing that fungi do, is that you'll have 
the fungi and some plants will do this where they have different types of life cycles that they will go through at different times. Yes, absolutely. They, they uh, switch gears and how they grow and how they live and die depending on the situation. Yes. So we and then they run around vomiting on people and eating people. And I mean, like there's you get it for the, the people making the movie of this. You have an infinite number of creepy things to do bugs crawling from one mouth to another mouth <laughs> oh this is this is horrible fantastic. things <laughs> this is great hey happy halloween everybody <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on this spooky <laughs> ride <laughs> this has been a lot of fun i hope our listeners have enjoyed it because i want to do it again next year we we are so looking forward to next year please let us know what you think and give us your comments on our creepy mouth zombies yes and as as we've mentioned before if we have any artists listening and you feel like doing some fan fiction fan art for us i we're not gonna stop you if you're needing to kill time and this this is just in the back of your head you know jot jot, jot something down <laughs> <laughs> someday we'll make the, the common descent motion picture will be oh yeah common descent the movie will be us fighting all of our spooky creatures yes that'd be fantastic yeah thanks again for listening everyone thanks everyone for joining us throughout this month uh we now return you after long last (laughs) to your regularly scheduled program and only your regularly scheduled program at least until next year yeah we're taking a break (laughs) by taking a break we mean Going back to the normal schedule yes. for a bit. Yes. <laughs> which is which is crazy. We love you guys. Thank you. Happy Halloween. And tune in next year for more creepy creators in their evolutionary histories. Brains. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.